Hello and welcome to the first Recast episode of 2022. For those who aren't yet avid listeners, Recast is the podcast from Remit Consulting. This one we've got coming up is a real goodie and we've been planning it for quite a while now and we're talking all things impact investment. Not only is ESG always topical, it's also so important too. And with new year, new me, energy filling the air, we want to know how it should be making an impact in 2022. How are you? Happy New Year to you. Yes, Happy New Year to you both too. I don't know if you can say that this late in the month, actually, but Happy New Year. Yeah, I no, usually I think... say the cutoff is is my birthday, which was about a week ago. But oh, Happy Birthday! That was just me to avoid my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so, how is everyone feeling in the post Christmas period with all the all the excitements of possibly looking towards the end of Plan B? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm optimistic and hopeful. But we will see that the proof will be in the pudding. I mean, as you know, we've been monitoring the volume of uh, office workers going back to their desks for some time. Um, when Plan B was introduced in December, the numbers pretty much plummeted. And uh, clearly between Christmas and New Year, they were very low. They always are anyway, I guess. It recovered ever so slightly in New Year. Um, it went to about six and a half percent I think it was and then the the first full week back it was about 12 12 and a half percent nationally we've since had the announcement and we are waiting to see what happens once plan b has come to a complete end watch this space so Kat what news have you got for us well Paddy I had I had a lovely long list of things to talk about but having spoken to our special guests uh, for this podcast yesterday I found that actually they had a lot more interesting stuff to say than I did so I will just keep it fairly snappy and to one thing that I read in the EG which came from Derwent London sustainability manager Samantha Carlson who was talking about how kind of ESG should be tackled in real estate. And one of the things that she said that really resonated with me was that we need to be sharing lessons. This is a goal for everyone. This is not a goal for companies to use as competitive advantage. This resonated because at the start of the pandemic, Remit held forums for property managers and property asset managers. And one of the things that I remember really clearly hearing at the time was people saying, we don't care if we are sharing things that we historically would like to keep for competitive advantage we just want to make sure we all get through it together not a time for school time tests when you make the wall of folders i think this is very much a guys we've all got an exam tomorrow so let's help each a other grown-up collaboration Big grown up. That. very much grown up so without further ado then i'd like to, to introduce you to melissa hutchison remit head of esg and natasha tratham associate vice president of global alternative product real estate at Newveen. Hi, both of you. Hi, Natasha. Welcome to the podcast and welcome back, Melissa. Always nice to see you again. And thank you both for joining us to talk about impact investment. We're really excited about it. Um, We've obviously brought you guys on because you know a lot more than we do. So we're really interested to hear what you have to say. But I think everyone would like to know a little bit about each of your backgrounds and especially Natasha. We haven't met you before on the podcast. And if you could tell us a bit about what kind of brought you here to a point where you have things to say about impact investment and why does it matter to you? 
Of course, and thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Natasha Drayton. So I work for uh, Nuveen Real Estate and working in the product development function. And what's led me on to impact is to say part of our role is to sort of think about new products in the market, what investors are seeing. And Nuveen has a real history of being a, a leader in the ESG space. And with our broader organization at the Nuveen level, having that uh, impact investment background, it felt like a really natural fit to progress our ESG characteristics further than just ESG integration into impact. And my real preference for doing so and working on it and the, the reason why I'm quite passionate about it is because it's something that for uh, real assets is something we can make a real difference in so it seems like the real the future of um of products from my space so that's that's how I've come into it. That's great and uh, say you had someone who has never heard of impact investment ever before how would you summarize it in just like a couple of sentences? Yeah no problem so you can think about I always think about impact on a a scale of investment when you have on the one hand just your traditional investing like the goal is profit you don't really think about how you invest it's really just making money and then all the way on the other side you have transportation so you're using your money to just give it away to charity impact is sort of in the middle of that spectrum so it's combining that drive and that uh, focus on profit with having a positive influence on society or the environment. And it's having that impact that will go further than what otherwise have been created in the market. So the good example of this and an example that's often spouted on from a real estate perspective is if you think about affordable housing, you're building a new block of flats and a certain percentage will have to be affordable units. But an impact investor wouldn't be able to just rely on that. They would therefore have to do something additional in that, whether it be more affordable units, whether it be setting some at the median income for depending on the need of that local community or putting a crash in the bottom of the building, thinking about how they can improve the building to have a greater impact on that society or indeed the environment. Wow, that was really clear. And I think that cleared up even my understanding. And I thought I knew what it was. So thank you for that. Um, And Melissa, yes, like I said before, welcome back. Really nice to have you again. Um, For people who might be listening for the first time, uh, could you give a little bit of a background of why you care about impact investment? So for those of you who don't know me, um, I've obviously been at Remit for three years and I have a background in property management, asset management. So I've sort of worked in those parts um, of the industry on a kind of operational level for a number of years um, in mixed use uh, developments. And I think moving into the management consultancy space, I've seen more and more people asking sort of organically about things to do with ESG and how should they implement it. And there's a real gap I found between the investors who have an idea and the implementation on the ground. And Natasha, that's kind of what I want to talk to you about and get your thoughts. We've been working with some impact investors over the last year um, to look at how they go about making their investments work operationally. And I think it's really important as the world is changing to really understand, A, what it is, but B, how you can actually affect change um, rather than just have it on paper. So that's sort of where my interest lies. Could, could I ask, would we say that impact investment is kind of about making investments in ESG and making investments for the good of the world and society sustainable? Because if you have a finite amount of money and it runs out, you have to stop investing in those things. Whereas if your investment does also generate a return, then that can be plowed back in. 
Yeah, I think it's when you sort of think about that spectrum, when you have ESG integration as one you know, factor. So you're thinking, OK, my ultimate goal is making money for my investors, but I do want to have certain considerations laid in the back of, you know, maybe I'm only going to, you know, I'm not going to invest in Florida because it might be underwater at some point. It's that that type of thing is is not quite impact investment because there are some really key points that you have to have, which is one, the intention to make an impact. It can't be a byproduct um, to that additionality point that I mentioned. And, and then three, having that um, positive influence on, as I say, society or the environment. So it can be a number of different strategies and crucially being able to measure that. So what Melissa, you were saying about being able to actually evidence it in paper is such a key point to impact investing that measurability and reporting on that to your investors and really being held accountable is one of the other sort of key facets to impact investing. Definitely feel like that's a key point and we've seen with our clients the kind of E, as everyone says, the environmental piece is a little bit further ahead with a number of benchmarks, but a lot of clients that we speak to sort of say they want to have an impact. Where do they start? And we always have to say, have you measured anything? Because without a baseline, there really is nowhere to go. And I think that's going to be really interesting in the next two to five years. I mean, to be honest, I think it'll be quicker than that. But um, how many measurements will come out and also kind of making sure that we sort of don't have hundreds of measurements that can't be compared to each other. Let, let's talk about that then, because um, it's it's time for my favourite anecdote, but it is about this measuring. It's the, if, if anyone's ever joined a, I don't think I should name them, but a, a fairly luxury gym. But whenever you go, they say, if you're not measuring, you're not achieving. You need to know what it is. And the inclination is to sometimes think, well, I'll just get a bit better before I actually find out how bad I am. But actually, it's, it is about that. And how how can we measure things which we currently don't measure? Is there a reason why we don't? Yeah, and I, I think that it's a minister's point, the social piece is where it's harder to measure because if you're proving the energy efficiency of a building, then that's quantifiable. It's easy to, well, it's sometimes easy to measure and report on and evidence that that's what you've done to improve the energy efficiency of that building. With the social side, I think we talked before that affordable housing is maybe the anomaly because you can say X number of affordable units. But there's other challenges in that in, in terms of, you know, when you have people who move into an affordable unit, is it salary based? Are you monitoring their salary? How do you, you know, what happens if their salary ticks above and then goes below? There are all sorts of areas where it's a bit of a, a risky situation to put yourself in. And I think that's one one of the, well, two of the reasons that, that on the social side, it's sort of lagging slightly behind on the environment. It's one, the measurability, because some of them are softer factors and not in the data and the numbers. And two, there's a bit more of a reputational risk if you're if you're an affordable housing manager and you're seen to be, you know, everyone in, in the building initially qualified and then their salaries are way higher and then you get reported on that basis. Or if you're kicking people out because they make £10 more than you initially expected. So it's definitely a, a challenge to get some consistency to this point. But even just the data to back it up is, it can be hard from a reporting perspective. Um, one of the things I've also seen um, is not just making sure you're getting the right data, but making sure that throughout your chain that they understand you're collecting that data and those measurements. You know, we have one client who came to us to ask how they were doing and it turns out they're having a massive social impact. They had absolutely no idea. It's complete uh, byproduct to what they're doing, but without the measurements, without us looking at an assessment of what they were what they're doing, it, they had no idea. Um, I also remember working in retail 
we put a rainwater harvesting system in because operationally it made a great made great sense from a cost perspective, but actually it saved 90% of the water on the site. And it wasn't until much further down the line that we sort of went, hang on a second, we should be advertising that. We should be saying this is something that we've done. This is a great, a great way of saving water. And also we should be rolling this out across a load of other um, shopping centres. Whereas the kind of FM team had done it because to them it made sense and they had no idea that there might be a different way of looking at it or that it might benefit other people. So I think also making sure that your kind of supply chain and everyone in the group knows what you're looking for and knows that this is something that's important. Yeah, I think that's so right, because from, you know, an owner perspective, as as, as we are, that tenant engagement is so important because, it, again, just go back to the E, for example, when we try and monitor, monitor energy efficiency, if we have no say or not necessarily say, but engagement with the occupiers on the ground, then and they perhaps don't want to share that data with us to be able to establish how, you know, and how we're monitoring and measuring what impact we're having or what the energy production of a building is or anything else. And that's really challenging. So setting those expectations at the start as an owner, if you're not operating the asset yourself, is another key point. And with the sustainable finance disclosure regulation, that's a point that's coming up quite consistently because if we're wanting to be a you know classified as a green or dark green fund then that reporting again is really important so even if we're not an impact fund if we're having a dark green or green element being able to report um, and provide data to our investors on that basis we really need those occupiers and tenants to be able to work with us and share information with us so those expectations need to be set right from the forefront and that's definitely not been the relationship that tenants and owners have necessarily had in the past and you know thinking about real estate debt that's even more challenging because you're kind of one step further removed so that would definitely be a learning curve and I think I think it is changing um certainly in the logistics space is where we've seen it starting to improve because before people were so disconnected but it's it's going to be a challenge for sure going forward definitely think you can see the difference between kind of developer manager operators that are set up where they do everything from conception to operation and where there is a gap between the investors and the operation of the building those kind of companies that you see talking a lot about this in the news at the minute and their net zero carbon pathways um, etc where they have developed the buildings and then continue to own and manage them there is a lot of talk about engaging with tenants there's a lot of Um, looking at leases and lease clauses that will help with that but definitely with some of our clients I've seen the gap where and that's the bit like I said at the beginning for me is really important if we're going to make this work as an industry is how do you tie the investor's desire to you know be a dark green or green fund etc with the right reporting to have the right kind of impact to those people who are on the floor doing the day job where their number one priority is keep costs down otherwise the tenants aren't going to pay it or your aim for this one year is a financial return um, and sort of embed those values throughout it um i i don't have an answer it's just something no, and i don't necessarily have an answer either but i think what's been interesting and in some of the things that we've seen is more tech enabled companies that enable you to engage with the local communities or your tenants or some whoever whoever you're wanting to engage with and make it super easy for them to send you the information you need as owner and that keeping costs low because it's not at, you know it's all digital or it's all tech enabled so it's a cheaper way of engaging with your tenants 
Um, and it's just, you know, through online surveys and it's all automated and it makes it more straightforward. And I haven't seen it for everything, but I've seen it, for example, for uh, local communities. And if you're developing a building in that area, what that community needs, what they're missing, so that you can help them to design a building which is suitable for that area um, and does create generate the biggest impact because you're saying this is what this area needs and this is what we're going to deliver. So I think the more that those types of companies start to come to the fore and are more used rather than the sort of traditional you know, going to a shopping centre with your piece of paper and asking every every uh, retailer to fill it out and then go back and calculate it. Um, I think that it will definitely make things smoother and easier going forward. By the way, I completely agree. In the, I also work in our tech service line and the amount of ESG related tech that we're seeing coming into the market is yeah. unbelievable. I think it's going to be a real spike. If you listen to the podcast for my forecast for 2022, <laughs> um, I think I mentioned it, in fact, you know, plug that one. Um, no, it's, I, I just, that seems to be exploding. I'm not sure all of it is kind of the finished product yet. I'm yeah. still trying to work my head around which ones work and which ones don't, but there is so much of it going on. So I completely agree. I wanted to ask you about your thoughts around SFDR. Um, and kind of with the increase in regulation um, when I was at MIPIM there was some interesting conversations going on about um, SFDR and that with the increase in regulation actually impacts in investment may cease to be a thing because everything will need to be an impact investment yeah. um, particularly with the drive from a social conscious point of view you're seeing more and more people be careful about where they invest their money and I just wondered what you whether you agreed so I, I think that I definitely think we'll see more impact funds. I don't necessarily think that, and for two reasons, I don't necessarily think SFDR is the answer. But firstly, I think that because you have to have, it's such a, there's such boundaries around it because you really don't want to be greenwashing and saying, oh, we're an impact fund and you're not doing what you need to, which is the measurement piece. And also setting setting your stall out so saying here's our strategy this is the impact we're trying we're going to achieve and then being held accountable to, but to your investors but through the reporting that is and being considerate like there's there's different elements such as thinking about responsible exits so when you buy a building and say again just use the affordable housing analogy because it's, it's a simpler one to go through but you say, okay, I'm going to lease 50% of this building to people earning less than the area median income you can't then do that for five years flip it to someone who's going to just raise up the rents so that they can then you know make a maximum profit out of it that then wouldn't necessarily be impact so this so I think there's there are sufficient guardrails around it to say that you still would differentiate differentiate someone with a say an environmental focus in their in their fund but aren't willing to tick off all these quite important elements to impact investment like responsible exits like the the additionality point the intention setting out their stall at the start but I think specifically to SFDR some of the it's and it's it's a challenging one because it seems to be evolving the regulation even though we're already in the uh, in the phase of implementation but one factor that came up recently was that so if we consider that Article 9 funds are impact funds, and that's to your point that actually then if all Article 9 funds are, say, impact funds, then it's going to certainly be a bigger universe. And the, I guess, initial fear of labelling yourself as an impact fund without being able to evidence or approve it is taken away because you have to report under the regulation. But one point was that when, if your Article 9 criteria is that you have to have 100% of your investments have to be sustainable investments 
at what stage do they have to be sustainable? Is it day one on acquisition or is it within six months or within a year? And the recent guidance was that, no, it has to be on acquisition. And then that's a challenge for us because if we as impact investors wouldn't necessarily just think buying a sustainable building now and just managing it would be impact. We would think, actually, if you buy old stock and then improve it, that would be your impact that you've generated. But that, under the regulation, under the guidance, wouldn't be an Article 9 fund. So it kind of seems bizarre. And it almost now is diverging from what we think is impact versus what an article nine fund is which initially we thought that they two would be the same that also leaves so much of our real estate that might have you know improvements that could be made without people who possibly would have invested in it so that seems without judging sftr um a little (laughs) short-sighted because you know is it something like 80 percent of our stock is already in existence and needs work i can't remember the exact percentage but it's up there I'm not entirely sure I agree with you, Melissa. Okay. Um, Because I think that there is also an issue of people wanting the shiny new toy. They want a building. They can say, yes, we've improved it in this way. And that does then take away the ability to exit sustainably. Because if there's no one who will manage assets, which are already kind of okay sustainably, what we'll end up with is a lot of change and then everything falling off a cliff at the end. So is that, surely that's the intention of SSDR? Well, my my understanding is it's literally to measure it. The thing is, if you can take a building and just manage it, that's fine. But if no one will take a subpar building sustainably because it won't meet their regulations and they won't get any benefit from improving it, we will be left, I feel, with a lot of obsolescent stock that can't be used or managed or um, kind of redeveloped and just sitting around in the market. It's already becoming a problem that people don't want to buy kind of the older buildings. Um, What will happen in 2023 when the EPCs are going to change again? I've absolutely no idea. I'm very much watching that space. Yeah, and I think there's a place for both of those types of strategies Mm -hmm. within if SSDR, if I guess if the aim is like standardization and thinking, okay, I'm an investor and I want to invest in an Article 9 fund and here's my universe without having to sort of scroll through themselves, then there's probably a place for both. But I do think it's a an interesting choice to say, if you're going to be creating sustainable product, that is not as good as just managing an existing sustainable building if from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah, particularly if there are less already in development. So it's yeah you know people have to create it exactly and and the energy intensity of development itself does that mean that that from an impact standpoint that's something that we always grapple with is okay we're going to be creating a really sustainable building but development is energy intensive so how do we offset that when we're building to make sure that we're not you know actually in the end this whilst we're trying to create an environmentally friendly building the damage we've caused through the development has offset any impact positive impact we have so having those considerations are really important but if you're just going to be continually building new stock it's or you know operating those shiny buildings which there probably is already quite high demand for it's not not very good if i can ask you once you've developed your building and you've you know managed to justify the environment environmental impact of the development and how you're going to put it in place can i ask how much you if you have a mandate of whatever that may be maybe it's affordable Uh, housing and you're going beyond that 
How much do you think around the other issues? So let's say you're a sustain, um, sorry, let's say you're a social impact fund and you're looking to improve kind of the social aspects of the area and the community. How much do you give consideration to the, the environmental aspects? Do you not, because that's not what you're doing with this fund, or do you take them into greater consideration because you're having a social impact? Yeah, so we certainly have a mind to the, the negative impacts that we may cause. Um, so that is, and it's, it comes again down to the SFDR regulation because they have these, uh, you know, the, the policy of do no harm, do no significant harm and the principal adverse indicators. But we certainly would consider, so the development piece might be a, a negative impact. And then you'd consider, could you, how could you, make that building um the, the development process more more friendly environmentally friendly and for instance we do have an affordable housing mandate where wood construction is being used because it is more sustainable construction method than than others so that's one factor that we do have to consider but it's again it's a reporting an internal reporting perspective so we don't from an impact pure impact strategy perspective we say here is what we're going to measure ourselves against here is what we're setting our stool up to do and this is what we report on but those negative impacts always do have to be considered some of them and then not only from a reputational risk but also from a you know is this worth doing from a strategy perspective you can never capture all senses so I think before we discuss in terms of like improvements to an area is gentrification then the downside of what you're doing and balancing and weighing up those potential issues with the, what good you're trying to do so it is a real balance to be struck and what we do internally is, is really list those try and consider up front as much as we can and offset where we can and normally development is a is a good one because you can do things to improve it but stuff like you know display of, of people that's a really challenging one to try and tackle so it's it's definitely fraught with um things points to consider it's interesting that you mentioned the gentrification because i wanted to ask uh, you, you about this because i think it's often something that is seen as a barrier but my question is like how much grass level like consideration has to take place from the sounds of what you were just saying quite a lot and i guess like how can we decide what's right or wrong for an area how can you do that when communities can be hundreds, thousands of people? So engaging with communities is really important. And that's one of the reasons that we so far our strategies from a real estate perspective, because of course there's impact investing in a number of different asset classes. And some of these won't have these issues that we're, we're talking about. But from a real estate specific perspective, what we've done is had so far sort of country specific or even sometimes narrow specific um region specific strategies so that actually we can spend the time and dedicate time to thinking okay what are the needs of that local community and whether it be engaging with um, operators on on the ground or you know those tech enabled companies that we can actually seek and solicit feedback from people so that we can actually have the best picture we can to say this is what this place could look like or, or could have as an improvement and it, you know from an affordable hat so that so yeah to date we've just had those single country strategies from a real estate perspective and that helps us to because it's it's very intensive and it will require a lot of resource and a lot of time to be able to do that across communities when their needs and their desires and the cultures and everything will be very very different across all the different areas that, that we potentially could invest in so no no sort of 
broad strategy to date, but that's how we've sought to manage it at the moment and spent a lot of time in considering those reputational risks and which ones are in our control and which ones aren't in our control. And that's one of the areas that is challenging because you put your head above the parapet and all of a sudden you, you get something wrong. And then it's like, well, why bother? Why not just do the same investments? Because no one's going to have a go at us for doing that. <laughs> the, that is such an interesting point because that has come up a number of times over the last six months at various kind of conferences I've been at um, and places that I've been talking to people who are talking about ESG in a kind of more innovative way. And it, the being blamed for doing something wrong yeah. has come up a number of times of, you know, if you're sticking your neck out there, then if it goes wrong, you know, you put your your reputation at risk. And actually I'm hearing from more and more people in this area, nobody knows the right answer. So you just got to give it a go. And actually we'd rather someone tried and it went wrong. At least you've learned how not to do it than I've ever really heard before in anything to do with real estate, because I have found real estate generally has a, well, we've always done it this way. And we know that that's safe attitude, but this topic has become so important and I and I think so so prevalent in kind of society's mind let alone just the real estate industry like it's everywhere that actually and I'm quite excited about that I'm quite excited about the idea that actually you could give it a go and if it doesn't go right people will try to not blame you but learn from it and try something new Um, otherwise I think this could take a really long time Um, and and that's the thing if you're you're doing it in a considerate and thoughtful way it's not that we're just gonna buy here and and doesn't matter about any of the consequences we are thinking about what that what we can do and trying to balance that against the, the positive impact where we can but as you say you're never going to be able to guess everything and the need for impact investments from both a societal and environmental perspective and from an investor perspective is so great that if you can approach it and, and think think thoughtfully think considerately and then go for it, then it's that's almost as much as you can do. I love that idea of cancelling cancel culture within real estate. I think that's really <laughs> nice. Just to come back to a point that you were saying before, which was about like deciding what is good for a specific community. I was in a conversation the other day where we were talking about um, bringing a community to new sites. And someone said, oh, you just build a school, it's easy. And then everyone wants to go there. And I thought, my God, I would I would pay considerably more rent to be not anywhere near a school. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I just wondered, I know, Melissa, this is something you and I have spoken about before, is that what is good in one place is not necessarily good in, in another. And there are issues around kind of ethics, because, for example, you could get me to pay more rent by putting a pub next door to my house. But I also know that some people would prefer not to have a pub next door. Yeah, and I think that's and it'd be interesting to hear Melissa your views. So I think that's why mixed use developments are so good from an impact investment perspective because they do tackle a lot for a community. So bringing you know the the idea of placemaking and bringing people together that is really supported by mixed use developments. The ones that we've been involved in, we've seen a lot of that where those areas or those communities might have been very disparate. Actually having somewhere where there's a bit of retail, there's office, you know, there's leisure, like a, a cinema, you know, whatever it may be, actually yeah. has a really good way of making that place and that community a community. Yeah, so I would say, obviously, with my background mixed use, I'm a huge fan. Placemaking is something that I think is so important and so overlooked. I really feel like you can literally feel it when you're on high streets that are owned by different landlords and it's not cohesive and there clearly is no plan. Where I live, 
currently. There is so much female fashion, it is unbelievable, and literally nothing else. And I, you know, I think there are certain developers who are incredibly good at it, and there I'm not going to go into the names, but some who are really good at it, and I have seen the difference it can make when you put benches back in so that the mobile the people with mobility issues or the elderly who are need a bit more of a rest can actually sit outside in a kind of shopping mall or in an external public realm area and actually that I mean ultimately you sell it as you know increases footfall which may increase spend which is also true but it also creates an area where people can be and hang out there's a amazing um, scheme in Barcelona where they're making they have a kind of grid planning system and they're making big blocks pedestrianized only so that they can put in things like seating pedestrian walkways more trees more lighting and stopping cars driving through cars can still get there but they just drive around the outside of a nine cube box I think it's a three by three of buildings and it's made such a difference to how people can get around I feel like with the pandemic that's become even more important you know we talk a lot about the 15 minute city or 50 minute town um being able to go to one place where you can sort of get everything the ease of it um i think it's become very clear that people don't want to be traveling all over the place for everything and actually having things a bit nearer to home or nearer to each other is important the other thing that i find interesting about that is though should it be schools or pubs where this has come from is what one person considers ethical is not necessarily what another person considers ethical And so tenant screening causes me, and it's something that we will help clients with and that we will help clients sort of look at what they're prepared to sort of support or not support. But I do find it a very interesting question and quite frankly, a moral question for which um, I do not have have a view really, but who is deciding what is ethical? In England, a pub is the centre of a community, potentially, but in other countries, it would be considered absolutely the worst thing that could happen to a community, having drunk, rowdy people out and about. Simultaneously, um, you know, there are other uses for properties. We get to a point where meat production is considered unethical, and there are the beginnings of vegan funds coming out. I haven't actually seen any in real estate yet, but I know that they've started in other er you know, other areas and other asset classes. And I just find that a quite interesting point. At what point do you call something ethical and unethical, and who makes that decision? Like I said, I don't have an answer. I just think it's going to be an interesting point over the next few years. Also, for international investors who are across countries, things are different in different countries. I think it pushes things into kind of the fringe and things become hidden. But for example, you only have to look at red light districts and see how that's changed over the last 10 years with trying to kind of keep people acting badly out. Um, The regulations that have been put in, uh, will we lose those entirely? Again, I don't have an answer, but I just think it's kind of an interesting thought that that will start to become regulated from the very top of investment level decisions on how a building and an area kind of is operated, particularly if it's not something that a community necessarily wants, or if it does say it wants that, is it gentrification and therefore forcing out the original occupiers of the area? It just becomes a whole mind game of kind of issues. Um, I was going to say like how much engagement Typically, when a developer or 
an investor is looking at changing something in a community, how much community engagement they typically get. Yeah, I think it's probably fairly limited. Like if you think about the planning process in in England, it's those weird notices they put up on lampposts and it's in the middle of the afternoon that people are generally working. So then only retired people can generally go to it and have an interest in saying anything. So I think that the traditional form of engagement through that planning process or the developers probably historically are doing what they strictly have to do separate from from what you might do in an impact band is is very limited i think when you're talking about impacts whether it be finding another way of engaging with people whether it be you know through instagram or surveys on social media or trying to get to engage people who haven't typically felt the need or or been felt the drive to go along to a planning meeting on a tuesday at four that does bring me to something that I, I was considering earlier, which was that things do change very fast. It's difficult re- for regulation to keep up. One of the things that has changed in even the last five years is the acceptance of ESG as an issue. It's not controversial that it's an issue. It really is a thing. I remember just before the pandemic, I was speaking to people about market trends and I mentioned ESG and people said to me, it, it, until investors care, it makes no difference. Well. I actually don't disagree with you at all. Sorry, I would just like to put that on the record. <laughs> I feel like suddenly in the last two years, people went, oh, it's actually a problem. Like this is an actual concern. Whereas, you know, I helped write a sustainability guide for property manager in, in my first year of being in the industry, which is I think six or seven years ago now. <laughs> um, I can't even remember. But, you know, it was a, it was a long time ago when when I was saying, oh, I'm really interested in that, people were going, really? You didn't study sustainability at university? No, but it affects us all. And I actually think that in the last couple of years, partly whilst it shouldn't take that, actually, yeah, the caring from investors and the increased regulation really has, from my perspective and the clients that I talk to, really had an impact because they've gone, oh, hang on, we won't have any money if we don't do something about this, which is possibly an awful reason for it to take place, but it's just the way the world works. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you both. I think from our perspective, it's, it is the investors that are pushing strategies for, that are sort of environmentally or sustainably focused um, or impact strategies, because I think the real estate industry probably has some of those those leaders in sustainability who have always been passionate and cared about pushing sustainable or environmental factors because it, it does matter and it and they are passionate about it but the real estate industry hasn't traditionally been full of those people and so the fact that the investors are now pushing the agenda and that and we're responding with strategies that are focused on ESG issues or, or you know impact strategies because that's the feedback we're getting is really helping to push uh, that from an industry-wide perspective and I also think that those investors will therefore be the ones to hold us accountable rather than us saying this is our target internally and we're just we're going to try and achieve and if we don't no one will know because those investors will be banging on your door to say why didn't you achieve that great point um but I as you're talking about it's being led by the investors this is the bit that I'm sort of working on or trying to work with some clients on is how do you go about you've got your product you've got your strategy you say you're going to achieve something how do you go about making sure that that is seen and adhered to throughout your supply chain through your contractors through your asset managers property managers facilities managers you know right down to sort of cleaning security staff how do you how do you go about that yeah and it starts at the strategy stage 
because if we don't feel, you know, through our investment committee process and our product committee process, if we don't feel comfortable that we have the right people that we've worked with in the past that will be able to help us achieve that, then we wouldn't set out a strategy that aiming to that. We'd have to have the groundwork laid down and say, yes, we are comfortable in achieving this. It's the same whether you think about it from a target return perspective and you're doing your model portfolio to say, yes, I can reach this target return. If it's an impact objective, you have to have confidence that you can achieve that as well, whether it be through things you've done in the past or you know who, who you engage with on the operator front throughout that strategy process. And then on an ongoing perspective, every um, asset that you acquire will have a due diligence program at the start and that will be a key for impact. That'll be a key element to presenting and approving that asset. It wouldn't just be, it meets the target return. Those are two considerations. So the, the scorecard methodology that we, ad uh, we adopt so that we can say, yes, we are comfortable in meeting our impact objective factors in the whole level. And it's, it's certainly, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens if we come across something we want to do and we don't have sort of the connections to be able to do it. It's, it's more theoretical. But today it's been, okay, this is what our impact suggested is. And at the, at the outset, we've set it because we're comfortable that, yes, we can achieve this with the suppliers we've used or the process that we have in place. That's very interesting that you say about realistic targets, Natasha, because I can't have a, pro a podcast on this subject and not ask you about COP26 um, <laughs> and the 1.5 degree temperature reduction target. Is that a realistic target? Can it be met? Do you think? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure it can. I don't know. Think I don't necessarily think it will. I, I, we obviously haven't been meeting. Like there's a reason it's it's now 1.5 instead of two. It's been we haven't been meeting it. I think that people are being more woke if you want to say like they are more appreciative of what's going on and it's, it's what you were saying earlier Kat it's people are just realizing the scale of the problem and all of the different ways that they can have an influence on improving it I just don't know that we're quite at the stage where because even you know some of the targets that were the set in COP there's still you know countries who are some of the biggest contributors who are still not signed up to this so probably my confidence is medium to low rather than medium to high. I would agree. I'd really like not to. And I think the beginning of the pandemic showed us what globally we could do if we all kind of pulled together. But I think the issue there is that it is a global issue and therefore kind of everyone has to be on board. I, you know, there are the leading countries, much like there are the leading real estate companies, but this needs kind of everyone um, it's a quote I use a lot in our in our team, you'll all heard me say it, but there's a quote in the zero waste community that sort of says you don't need one person doing zero waste perfectly. You need a million people doing zero waste imperfectly. And I sort of really, truly believe that for all of this. And particularly when I'm talking uh, with clients on any of these issues, I really try to stick by that about it's not about being perfect. It's about doing what you can and that next step. But I kind of feel on a global level, unless kind of everyone is on board there tends to be a sort of blame game culture of like oh well they're not so why should we hinder how we're living and why should we change our way of life if other countries aren't prepared to do the same I really hope that that's changing and I hope that everything we've been through in the last couple of years seeing how these things happen globally will hopefully give us a push in the right direction to say actually we kind of have to pull together for this as well as we did for the pandemic if that could 
that could come out of it and be the silver lining, I'd be very happy. Well, um, it is it is time for me to draw us to a close, but I think that's a really nice uh, time to end it, which is on that point of it doesn't really matter that you're doing everything to the gold standard as long as you're doing something that is moving us along in the right direction. So thank you so much, both of you. That was, a, I can't say the most interesting podcast we've recorded because then that sounds really bad to the other podcasts, but that was certainly one of the top five podcasts we have recorded. The definitely best one in 2022. <laughs> So far. Absolutely. Hands down. The best 2022 one so far. Um, thanks <laughs> Thank for having you. Us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. That was a fascinating conversation there between Natasha from Nuveen and Melissa on uh, impact investing. Um it's been quite a long one today, Kat. So we're going to go straight into Kat's cliche, the traditional ending for the podcast. <laughs> what have you got for us this time? Oh, it's a good one this week, Paddy. So I've jumped the gun, Kat, but I'm excited because it's ever so topical for what we've just been talking about. Okay, tell me more. So with having been talking about temperatures being high, environmental impact and things like that, I thought I would go for a really old school management consultancy classic, which sort of fitted the bill which is we don't need to boil the ocean. We don't need to boil the ocean. We don't need to boil the ocean. And this is one that refers to kind of a a really massive task, which is too difficult and trying to find a way around it to avoid having to do the the massive task in one go, but splitting it down into smaller chunks. Another one that people might have heard is elephant burgers. But this, it represents a kind of an old view on the environment that it was almost something a bit too scary to deal with. And I think it's really topical to today based on something that Melissa said and a theme that was running through, which is that we don't need everyone to do everything perfectly when we, in order to achieve the goals, the ESG goals, the environmental, the social and the governance goals, we don't need gold standard everything. We need just a little bit of good from everyone. And if everyone does a little bit of good, maybe we actually won't boil the ocean (laughs) very good emily thank you thank you very much i'm here all week (laughs) (laughs) available for parties and permits well i think that brings us to a a neat conclusion for this podcast can i say thank you both to kat and to emily and also to natasha and, and melissa if they're still listening and we'll see you soon Perfect. And thank you very much to our listeners. As always, if you would like to mention any topics or if you'd like to join us on the podcast, please do give me a tweet at remitcat or DM our Instagram account, recast.pod. 